Should we just start this podcast? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Trying to solve our lives problems. Crying about our lives for an hour. An hour and a half. It's been an hour and a half. (laughs) Oh my god. everyone and welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriaku. And I'm Molly Fox. And today we are discussing the book Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy by Claire McNear. And I'm very excited to nerd out about this book. <laughs> I officially conned Molly into uh, indulging my insufferable nerd side, and this will be really fun. For me, specifically. For Molly, not so much. (laughs) Uh, The author does say many times throughout the book, not, she doesn't say like, oh my god, this bunch of nerds, (laughs) but she almost does several times. (laughs) And I really appreciate that, because the whole time I was like, oh my god, all these nerds. Yeah, because it's, they do a lot of stuff. Like, we'll get into it, but it's, it's way more than you think. Yeah, they're taking Jeopardy too seriously, if you ask me. Nobody cares what I think about Jeopardy, but if you do care, I think it's too far. Fair enough. Uh, Should I start with a summary? Please, as always. So, as Molly mentions, today we are talking about Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy by Claire McNear. McNear is a writer at The Ringer, where she covers sports and culture. This accessible read investigates behind the scenes of the wildly popular and eminent game show Jeopardy. McNear interviews contestants, producers, and the beloved late host Alex Trebek to tell the story of Jeopardy using charming anecdotes. In this book, you find tips and tricks along the way from the game's most prodigious contestants, including Ken Jennings, James Halsauer, and Brad Rutter, the winningest champion, the highest earning champion, and the single day win record holder, respectively. McNear lays out the book to cover a number of aspects of Jeopardy, including how the contestants prepare, depictions of Jeopardy in pop culture, which I can't wait to talk about, and the various strategies contestants swear by to win. And with that, Here's your host, Molly Fox. So am I starting with my key takeaway? It's like I've never done this. Every <laughs> single time we do this podcast, we're like, "What? who's who's doing this? What's my name? I've, I've never been here before. What are the categories uh, of this podcast that we made up? What is yeah. key takeaway? Um, I think, yeah. Why don't you go with your key takeaway? Okay. So my first key takeaway is a joke, and it says... <laughs> As always, like, why can't I ever take this seriously ever? I'm like, it. my first one's a joke, huh? Uh, the first one I have is Jeopardy is a sport, question mark. <laughs> Honestly, that's a pretty good takeaway. I, I know. Um, but the one that's more earnest, and I honestly felt that way towards the end of the book where she was talking a lot about the um social clubs and mm-hmm. trivia nights and things that have sprung up around Jeopardy yeah. alums that it's really cool that everyone can find their people and that 
people in this world really have and they just they're vibing with each other they're just doing their thing and i as much as it is not my thing i'm really glad that they are getting to do their thing together yeah i agree i think it is really nice that she describes this subculture as exactly that a subculture and not i mean obviously she does make fun of them a little bit as the book goes on which like yeah that is (laughs) yeah hard not to write as the author of this book however (laughs) um she also talks a lot about their alumni network and uh just yeah how they've created a community around this activity that they all are very passionate about and I do think that that's very cool yeah I I just thought it was really lovely and encouraging and maybe it would have been I needed this lesson younger in life that like no matter who you are and how like weird you think you might be or whatever there's always people that are like you and that care about and enjoy the same things you care about i like that kate takeaway can you hear him like hacking in the background is he okay what's going on he is i think he's just like restless again i'm not though clearly (laughs) would someone give me some morphine my dog has an upset stomach and i can't take it (laughs) please do you also need an antiacid (laughs) I do. And I need to be resuscitated. Let's not keep that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They never know. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I will share my key takeaway, which is kind of what we said at the top of the show, but it's just that Jeopardy is harder than you think. And I don't say that because I think there are a lot of people that think Jeopardy is easy, but because I think there are a lot of people who don't know how intense the like training and preparation and devotion to this is. And so I'm not saying that because you think Jeopardy is easy. I'm saying it because however hard you think it is, you need to like quadruple it. (laughs) Yes. Well, it occurred to me as I, I watched episodes of Jeopardy, but not Mm -hmm. that many. I can't even recall the last time I saw one, but it's obviously culturally, known so i i thought i understood the concept but as i was reading the book i realized that a huge part of the strategy to win involves the wagering and i was like oh my god you have to be like smart enough to know all this shit and then quickly do math under hot lights Count like me what out. the hell that's <laughs> crazy <laughs> yeah so i was i was very like oh this is hard there was i never at any point was like i could do that i've no. never felt that way about jeopardy no. but i definitely am like i don't even remotely want to attempt yeah to do that. yeah it it's like one of those things where as i was reading it i was like wait, was this a stress dream I had one time? <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that that was like what my mind made up to make me feel the most. Uh, I agree because there are kind of like a couple different components. You need to actually be good at trivia. So you need to know the knowledge. Mm-hmm. But then there's so many yes. other parts of it, right? So you have to also be really quick on the buzzer to ring into the clues which is Mm -hmm. really sounds terribly difficult. And then you also, like you're saying, need to be able to have some sort of strategy or enough that you are outwinning your 
opponents. And so there's a lot of like background strategy that goes into that, which is really complicated. (laughs) Right. And there's the, there's an element of chance as well, no matter what, based on like the buzzer and then like when it comes to final jeopardy. Yeah. Like the, exactly. Like which questions you're going to get. And then like when it comes to final jeopardy, technically someone who was doing more poorly than you could win the game if you wager everything and are wrong and they don't wager everything. So it's like in the end, and that's, I guess that's not entirely chance. That's also strategy too. But there is like an element of like, you could be the smartest one there and still not win it. Yeah. So it's not just about knowing the most. Yeah. It reminds me, like I kept thinking this as I was reading that book, which is that like, we think of, or maybe I should just say myself, I'll speak for myself. I think of (laughs) the contestants of Jeopardy as being like the smartest person in the room, but Mm -hmm. it's not that it's the, they're the best at Jeopardy, which is Mm -hmm. the simplest way of like talking about a champion or a winner. But it's also like you could have somebody who's more intelligent or would score higher on an Mm -hmm. IQ test or any number of other things but the confluence of factors here is really specific. And so yeah. there's a reason why there's only three, like, greatest of all time Jeopardy champions. Totally. It's because it's yeah. such a specific skill or a specific yeah. set of skills. But I think the thing that is weird for me in the whole mix is that the, you're exactly right. It's not just about being the smartest. It, it's all this, like, weird combination of skills to the point that I'm, like, it doesn't actually matter then. Like if you're in a room of people and there's a person who is like the best at making hash browns, it's like, well, good for you. Like, because it's such a specific (laughs) minute skill that it's like, well, that doesn't actually benefit us in any way. It's like, if we needed someone smart, I don't know that you'd be able to help us, you know? (laughs) So it's, it's this funny thing where it's like, it doesn't have real world value in the same way. It doesn't apply to 95% of real world activities. And so it's like, well, I yeah. don't really know how to react to that news that you're the best clog right. dancer in the world. You know, it's like, that's not yeah, applicable it's like, here. It's objectively impre- impressive, but it doesn't stun me in the same way that if someone was like, I just performed like open heart surgery and saved a baby's <laughs> life. I'd be like, that's. That's pretty amazing. Thank you for doing that. If someone like walked in and they were like, I won Jeopardy. I'd be like, I don't give a shit. Get out of here, you nerd. Boo! Okay, boo! I'd like boo them out of the room. <laughs> Why am I the worst? This book made me think so much about this concept called... Um, I, now, I, I heard about this from a TikTok, folks. So don't... Bear with me. Don't go look for sources. Because I don't remember what they are. <laughs> But it was this idea that you don't yuck someone's yum, meaning that if someone really likes something and you think it's stupid, you don't need to like go around being like, ugh, that's so dumb. And I felt very called out on that because it's pretty much my whole personality to be like, ew, that's stupid. And I was like, hey, maybe let people enjoy things like Jeopardy. Just because you don't care about it doesn't mean it's not valuable. You mean bitch. (laughs) You know, I mean... I've already confessed this on the podcast, which is that I love to learn. So I am just infinitely fascinated by subcultures. 
of like people who are mm-hmm. obsessed oh, yes. with very specific things. And so I loved reading this not mm-hmm. because I am the most obsessed with Jeopardy, although I over the pandemic year I definitely threw it on yeah. in the background I was as I was on Twitter. Totally. Um, Comforting. But Comforting. I am just fascinated by other people's extreme obsessions and I Mm-hmm. loved reading it from that perspective and just thinking about how much of their lives they've devoted that you go to trivia night three times a week and you were the college quiz bowl champion and you you know there's just so mm-hmm. much preparation that goes into it yeah the the niche worlds are very interesting they have their own like heroes and their own celebrities. You know what I mean? Like, of course we all know Ken Jennings for obvious reasons, but I didn't, I don't say that like that. I had no idea. She, (laughs) this woman was naming names and kept repeating them. And I was like, have you talked about this person before? I have no frame of reference for this, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so Ken Jennings for people who don't watch Jeopardy at all. Um, he was the winningest champion of Jeopardy. He went on a 74 game win streak and won over $3 million. So much. So he was on the show. Think about that for 74 days. And so people got really attached to him because he was a longtime champion, but there are people that she talks about throughout the book that are seen as, like celebrities in the trivia circle, but they won like four games, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like their streak is like a week, which is still obviously very impressive, but not somebody that you would like know from any context other than being immersed in this world. And so I find that really fascinating. Yeah. And that like, but in that world, they're famous. I find yeah. that sort of thing. Yes. Very fascinating where it's like, you are famous to like 25,000 people or something like that, which is like amongst those like 25,000 right, people, right. you or are like even 2,500. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it reminds me of like the restaurant scene where a oh, chef yeah. can be famous and people will know their name and be like, Oh my God, this is blah, 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 blah. It's so, and I, I, I'll have no idea what any of that means, but it like, yeah, it means so much to so many people and then nothing to a bunch of other people. And that fascinates me. Yeah, because I think it just goes to show that, like, we all have such different priorities of what we think is cool or interesting or unique or uh, worthwhile mm-hmm. to adore. And so it's like, well, yeah, all of our celebrities are made up. Like, yeah. we, you know what I mean? Like, there's no reason for us to find anyone to be truly famous. Mm-hmm. Like, we make all of them up. So what does it matter if these people have different celebrities that we don't know? Right. Because they're all arbitrary, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's just kind of fun, I think, to visit another world mm-hmm. and know that that world exists out there and coexist alongside your world that has no overlap with that. Yeah. And that people devote their entire lives to it. And that like a lot of the people that she talked about on the book, it would be like, this person got on Jeopardy and their spouse did too. And it was just like, okay, so all, all of your, both of your entire lives is just about Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it's very insular, the mm-hmm. community, I think. But it makes sense because it's like, <laughs> I was about to be like, only someone who also cared that much about it could stand to be with someone who wouldn't shut up about Jeopardy all the time. Like, But it's kind of that idea where it's like, 
in order for you to care so much about and devote your life to something, your spouse, if you had one, would also have to be on board with that. Right, for sure. Like, you have a hobby that's a huge part of your life. You're not going to marry somebody who absolutely detests it. I assume. (laughs) Otherwise, that sounds like a pretty shitty life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it does make sense that, you know people meet their spouse yeah doing these well and it's like you meet your spouse usually by doing the things you do the most so like if you go to the same coffee shop every day and spend 12 hours a day there and you're looking to meet someone like chances are you're going to meet them there because you're there all the time so it's the same with like if you're doing these trivia circuits or you're going to the same trivia night every week Mm -hmm. whatever the thing you're doing the most is probably where you're going to meet someone and if you meet them at a trivia night, chances are they also care about trivia. You know, yeah. it's like, of course, you're going to meet someone with, like, similar interests. That's how relationships work. Yeah. <laughs> Hilariously, I do have to tell a story. So I love doing things one time. Okay. Love, I, love I love that. I love going and doing new things just once. Okay. Uh, because then I get, like, kind of bored with it. I'm like, okay, that was a good experience, but I'm, like, ready mm-hmm. for something else. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband and I that was at a bar near our apartment, like literally one time and we were so bad. (laughs) Like we got maybe (laughs) two out of 30 questions, correct? Or something like that. And I think of us as intelligent people, but it's just a completely different kind of intelligence and knowledge, I think. But it was just funny to me because there was mm-hmm. somebody who clearly came every single Friday night and got every single mm. question correctly. I have a bone to pick with the idea that someone who is exceptionally good at trivia is intelligent. Because I don't actually think that memorizing facts equals intelligence. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a certain kind of intelligence, though, right? Like, yes, obviously, being able to remember yeah. things in that quantity, but it's just, I don't think it. I don't know why I'm being such a like stick in the mud about it. But <laughs> I don't know what intelligence means. So, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I'm not a scholar. I don't know what. What is smart? I have no clue. No idea. <laughs> don't look at me. I was just going to say that I think intelligence in my like definition, which is like, okay, so you made it up. Like, what does that even mean? But intelligence implies an ability to problem solve and extrapolate from information. And just being able to memorize information doesn't mean you know how to do anything with it. True. Although a big part of trivia is also like the strategy and, you know, so that part That's does true. seem like problem Kind solving. of like with crosswords where there's like, it's not just knowing the answers right. to these things. It's being able to decipher right. the clues. So that's true. That does take intelligence. All right. I take it back. I, I'm i so bad at crosswords. Well, I am one of those people who's like, I'm not even going to attempt. If anyone ever asks me to play Sudoku, I will throw up on them immediately. <laughs> I was good at Sudoku, actually. I don't know why. I don't understand why people like it. I'm like, this is so boring. Like, I like the logic puzzles that are, like, words. Like, Sally has a red plate and Joe has a blue plate. But if they throw the plates at each other because they're getting divorced, (laughs) how soon will Sally get the house? The answer is immediately because she murdered him. This is not a true crime podcast. (laughs) Stop trying to make it a true crime podcast. Join us next time for Kate to murder me. (laughs) That's actually exactly what I meant by logic 
uh, puzzle. So thank you for filling You're that welcome. in. Should we move on to quotes? <laughs> um, sure, we can move on to quotes. I have one that's kind of about strategy. Okay, yeah, let's do that one. This quote cracked me up so much because it was just like, for someone who's supposedly really smart, this is a very dumb thing to think to yourself. <laughs> so this is, she's talking about a contestant named Jay Sexton who went up against another contestant who, oh, I should have written her name down. I did let's not. Call her Susie. She is, okay, let's say Susie. I wish I had because like the women deserve credit here, but she wrote her master's thesis on Jeopardy. So she was like basically an expert and she was like, would be hard to beat and so he was kind of like oh god i have to go up against her so that's the what's happening and jay sexton is having this inner monologue that he tells the author about later and so he goes if he was going to have any chance at at all he told himself as he walked onto the stage he would have to do a few not so easy things one i'm going to have to be smart (laughs) okay (laughs) Two, I'm going to have to be good on the buzzer. Also, okay. Three, and then when I get a daily double, I'm going to have to bet uncomfortably large numbers to keep up. And I was just like, so basically your thought process here is, if to win Jeopardy, I'm going to have to get up there and win Jeopardy. It's <laughs> just oh like, God. sir, is that your strategy to not be bad? That reminds me of every interview I've ever seen with a sideline reporter to a coach where they come over and they're like, all right, coach, what are you thinking right now? And they're like, well, you know, we just got to really try hard and we got to score more points than the other team and we really got to just hustle. And it's like, yeah, duh. Yeah. Like that was the worst waste of my time in the entire world. We do not need sideline reporters. I'm just going to throw that in there. We don't need them. Seriously. They don't contribute anything good. Anyway, moving on. It'd be like someone interviewing me before I sit down at my desk in the morning to go to work. They're like, how do you think you're going to get through this day? And it's like, well, I'm going to breathe in and I'm going to drink this coffee and I'm going to keep on having thoughts. And then I'm going to breathe out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to breathe out. That too. (laughs) It was just so dumb. I couldn't even believe that it was included in the book. Because I was like, your your strategy was to not be dumb? What are you talking about? It was hilarious. Unhelpful, to say the least. It cracked me up. It It was kind of that thing, though, of like, we've all been in a position where we're like super nervous. We're about to like give a public talk or whatever and if you had our thought process recorded it would just be like okay hey get up there just you're gonna be you're gonna be there so just be there and just you know what i mean okay so it's fine and get up there it's like and you're just do it and hey, hey. and do it now and do it right now it's gonna be fine <laughs> and don't throw up and oh my god you're almost throwing up push it back down <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I feel like we've definitely all had that, but I would not tell a reporter thereafter that that was my train of thought. I I would make up something much better. I'd be like, oh, you know, I was just really thinking about uh, how my wage wagering strategy would play out in the final double jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I would come up with something that sounded better to the layman than be smart. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I also think that a lot of what's happening here for me is that when somebody tells me that somebody is 
X adjective. So if somebody says, this person's really mm-hmm. smart, or this person's really attractive looking, or this person is really kind, mm-hmm. then I immediately... Mm-hmm. Are you immediately skeptical? Yeah, I'm immediately like, Prove I meet it. them and I'm like, well, they're not that blah, blah, blah. <laughs> because in my <laughs> mind, I made them out to be the most of whatever adjective that is. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when I'm looking at all of these Jeopardy contestants, I feel like I'm being more critical because I'm like, well, you were the smartest people. And it's like, well, no, they're the best at trivia. And those are different yeah. things, but may overlap, but mm-hmm. not always. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, like you said, it's a very niche capability. And they are the most capable at Jeopardy and the smartest at Jeopardy and the most talented at Jeopardy. And I will not take that away from them. No, and they can have it. And you know what? I don't want it. I'm good on that. That's that on that. (laughs) And congratulations, sir. You keep it. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that if you met them on the street, you would think that they were intelligent. You probably would think they were an idiot with a bad haircut. You know what I mean? And like, maybe they are and they could be both. <laughs> yeah. You could be an idiot and also be really good at Jeopardy. Can I uh, share a quote that's also on strategy that I found really interesting? Mm-hmm. There's a whole chapter called Time to Train, where she talks about the preparation of Jeopardy contestants. And in they hold these, like, forums where people who have been on Jeopardy or the producers will come in and answer questions for contestants mm-hmm. or up-and-coming contestants. And they talk a lot about handling the buzzer. And so there's this whole section about how to get a faster buzz in time. And we're really talking about like a hundred milliseconds or. (laughs) I agreed immediately. I was like, yes, I, you could say anything. We're really, we're, we're talking about like 50 to 300 milliseconds. Like it is such a small Mm -hmm. amount of time that you're right. The sports analogy is actually really good and apt here because it reminds me of swimming where it's such a small or racing or whatever, the smallest amount of time Mm -hmm. that you can possibly perceive, uh, it it makes Mm -hmm. the difference. And so this paragraph begins. um, So this is a webinar, basically, for about the buzzer. So they call it a buzzinar. So it begins at the buzzinar, Holznagel, who is the producer for the show, uh, enlists a guinea pig a Jeopardy and buzzer novice named Carlo, to try a few rounds of ringing in on his homemade buzzer system. Carlo's speed is so-so, about 313 milliseconds. Holzenagel hands him an enormous cup of lukewarm coffee, the better for chugging, though it does not look, based on Carlo's facial expressions, particularly appetizing, and tells him to drink. Consuming (laughs) caffeine, says Holzenagel, is one of the very best things a contestant can do to speed up their buzzer time. In his book, he credits it with shaving five one-thousandths of a second off his reaction time, a razor-thin margin as dazzling here as it might be at an Olympic trial. And I thought that was so interesting that the best thing you can do is is consume caffeine. Because, of course, you know, after I read it, I was like, oh, totally. But if you had asked me to come up with ideas and just brainstorm how would one get a better buzzer time, I would have no idea where to start. Well, the other thing, too, they did talk about the caffeine a lot for improving, like, buzzer time, but it 
to me felt like, wouldn't that reduce your capabilities in other ways? Like, yeah, because if you're anxious, which it sounds like most people are, why wouldn't you be going up there? Adding caffeine to it could make you so scrambled that you're not thinking clearly enough to like do the trivia part of it, I feel like. So I kind of was like, I don't know if I, I know for myself, I wouldn't do that because caffeine and my anxiety disorder is like, yeah, (laughs) well, I, I don't drink caffeine. Like I I do drink tea, but I don't drink coffee because I get heart palpitations. Mm -hmm. And so I thought the same Mm -hmm. thing. I was like, well, what if I have a stroke on the Jeopardy stage? Totally. I was like, do you think if I have a heart attack on the stage, I'll be good at it? I don't. Where is is the nearest hospital (laughs) what is the nearest hospital later on in the book they talk more about the whole wagering piece of it which we've discussed a bit and my second quote is about that because I think that was actually one of my biggest takeaways was how much the wagering factored into like your ability to actually win the game so this one quote I really liked towards the end of the book she says Jeopardy is a game where a contestant is all but certain to have to do some gambling, perhaps multiple times, in order to win. So central is the idea of risk that it is, of course, in the show's name. To do well, one must put yourself in Jeopardy. And I just thought that was so interesting and good because it was like, yeah, that is, that's actually the game. More than knowing the trivia, the game is the gambling. And I, That never occurs to you when you think of Jeopardy because you think about people knowing trivia. But that's just the, like, knowledge that you... It's like knowing the Mm -hmm. rules in order to play soccer. But that's not the strategy of soccer. I don't know what is, so don't ask. (laughs) Having a hot man bun. That's one of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Running all over the place in your Euro jersey and taking it off and then crying because they're so sick. And then coming over to my house and then, you know, other stuff. (laughs) What were we talking about? Oh, (laughs) in order to play Jeopardy, the game of Jeopardy is Mm -hmm. the, like, wagering and the gambling, and the trivia is just the, like, infrastructure that you need in order to, like, maneuver the system. Right, exactly. It's, like, the difference between having a framework and a strategy, like, you know, those two things are different Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. both important, but you need both. Yeah. Well, and at the end with Final Jeopardy... They get more time than you are shown during the episode to place their final wager. If if anyone doesn't understand how it works, which it's <laughs> hilarious that I'm about to try to explain because I also don't understand how it works. But so you get there's a final Jeopardy question. And before the question is asked, they get to pick a number that they're going to wager. And they're choice is always based upon the other people as well because if someone is doing better than you you want to wager enough that you could surpass them if they get the question wrong and if someone is doing like worse than you you want to make sure that they couldn't surpass you you know there's all the strategy involved to continue being the winner and they get more time than is shown in the actual episode airing to figure out what that wager is going to be and they're up there on the stage. And do they get a calculator? Because no. I would need one. I know. Me too. And I, I just was like, oh my God, you get through all of that and you're smart enough to get there and do all this shit. And then you have to be like good at quick math. Like, that's fuck too many you. That's unfair. That's what to be good at. Like, <laughs> stop. <laughs> I agree. This is actually a human rights abuse. And... <laughs> <laughs> This is a war crime. 
Okay, I have another one, which is just like a really fun tidbit. Um, so Holzhauer, who again is one of the greatest of all time champions, uh, it says he prepared for his appearance on the show by using a tried and true technique, studying children's books, which tend to condense complicated topics down to their most vital and interesting facts. And I found that to be really interesting. And again, once they said it, I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, of course you would use children's books. That makes so much sense, especially for categories that they often have on Greek mythology, for example, or, you know, just different scientific Mm -hmm. processes, things that you did learn in third grade, but we've all forgotten because they aren't relevant to our daily lives. But that made a lot of sense mm-hmm. to me, and I thought that was a really fun fact to pull out. Well, and it also gives insight into how they write the clues or the questions, because what she cites in that section, too, is that usually the questions are not written to be... Like, if it's about Thomas Jefferson, it's not going to be the most obscure, weird thing you could possibly know about him. Like, what was his 12th cousin's middle name or something like that? It's going to be, like, things that would be in a children's book about Thomas Jefferson. But just if you asked me on the street, of course I wouldn't know. I think there's a lot of strategy to the training process in addition to actually playing the game. The preparation of knowing what to memorize and what not to worry about and like what knowledge to keep versus what that you can kind of let go. And so I think mm-hmm. the the strategy of preparation was also something that seemed uh I keep saying interesting. I need what's a new word? Mm, riveting. <laughs> Which seemed really compelling to me. Oh, excellent word choice, Kate. Excellent. <sighs> riveting is one of those, we talked about this, that I feel like you can only use in a book like once every three chapters. Rit- oh, riveting? Absolutely. Once a book. Yeah. I was going to talk for a second about the the pre- preparation process, though, actually. My dad and I talked briefly. I told mm-hmm. him we were reading this book, and he asked yeah, kind of yeah. offhandedly, like, well, how does one get on Jeopardy? And I realized we haven't talked about that yet, so maybe we should. Because the process is really difficult. There's a test that you can take, and you can you, you don't find out what you scored on it, but if you scored high enough, you often advance into, like, essentially, like, rounds of interviews where you would, like, meet the producers or or the other talent handlers on the show. Because a big piece of what is involved with going on Jeopardy isn't just being smart, it's also being watchable. And I wouldn't go so far as to say charismatic, because these people I wouldn't think are charismatic, but they're still people that are, that the viewers of Jeopardy would find compelling riveting in fact and that's an important part of the show because it's before anything a show Mm -hmm. yeah and you want people to keep coming back to watch it and one of the things that they did uh i should briefly preface this by saying that jeopardy actually began in 1956 i think uh as a different show and then it went through a couple iterations and the most recent Mm -hmm. show that we understand as jeopardy now uh first uh became the show in 64 i want to say um or sometime in the 70s and so it became the modern version Mm. in the 70s and so a part of the 
adaptations they made for the modern version was to allow people to come back on the show. So you could have a streak. And so therefore the watchability became so much more important because you wanted somebody to get attached to the contestant and actually cheer for them. And you wanted to see them coming back. And so I think the, that change in the structure of the show probably made contestants being watchable and a little bit more charismatic more important than it had been. Yeah, and I think like charisma in and of itself probably isn't as important as endearingness because more than they needed to be like charismatic in the way we think of that, they needed to be someone that you didn't dislike. And I think it would be probably pretty easy to dislike someone who is kind of a know-it-all or is Mm -hmm. like abusive or is like smarter than Alex Trebek or is because there's all these factors that go into like what makes someone someone that other viewers would want to keep watching on the Jeopardy stage beyond just being like I don't know overwhelming charisma which I would argue none of them have (laughs) I don't think any of them have overwhelming charisma I think there are a couple of champions including Austin Rogers who I loved and uh and Ken Jennings actually who were deeply unpopular with the fan base when they first started, but then gained traction over time. And I think that that happens a lot as well. Uh, And it's kind of funny to read to whom that happened to, because it's Mm -hmm. kind of random. Like, you you know, like I think the producers do their best Mm -hmm. to put people who are watchable on TV, but there's no guarantee. Like there may be something about a person that you don't Mm -hmm. expect or, kind of budget for that tends to be a little grating on the audience that you didn't catch during their trials Mm -hmm. or anything. Yeah. Well, they do. She does talk about in different parts in the book, people who cheated and, and had been on, like you're allowed to come back on to Jeopardy if you win, but not if you lose. So you can't, if you play on Jeopardy and then you lose, you can't apply to play again. But there was like a guy who cheated and had played, multiple times and used like a different name so it wasn't even like he accidentally it was like you knew that you weren't allowed to and so those things do like slip through um so you could definitely have someone who seems like they'd be great on screen in the screening process and then they're like actually an asshole yeah actually the just really quick before we move on to questions i do want to share that the original version of this massive trivia show was the six ten a $64,000 question, which hilarious $64,000 being a lot in <laughs> the sixties. I mean, I'd still take it. To be honest. If you're <laughs> going to give it to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say no, but yeah. uh, the person who won the most nights on that show, uh, it turned out that he had cheated and collaborated or conspired with the producers to know the categories of the mm. trivia. Mm -hmm. and then ended up cheating and it was this whole big scandal and in 1959 eisenhower declared it a quote terrible thing to do to the american people end quote and j edgar hoover's g investigated the show fixing beneficiaries for links to communism (laughs) and i read that and i was like I hate it here. (laughs) What? (laughs) I just was so upset because later you find out that conspiring to cheat on a game show is a federal crime because of this incident in the 50s. And 
it's so upsetting because there are so many things that should be federal crimes and are not, and yet game show like heisting a game show. The game show is the real problem. I'm like, is this real life? Shut up. Women do not need to be able to have credit cards apart from their husbands, but we do need to make sure you're not cheating at game shows. Like, what are we doing? Anyway, our country's (laughs) perfect. Everyone should clap for us. Uh, I want to go home. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, do you have a question? I do, and it's really fun, and I can't wait to hear what you say. When you were a kid and you stayed home from school sick, in my family, the rule was kind of like, if you are too sick to go to school, you're too sick to watch TV, which is insane. No one's ever too sick to watch TV. But we always did anyway. Mom and dad, we always did anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I knew the sound of a car coming down the driveway into the garage and how to turn the TV (laughs) off quickly enough. But so we would always, like, if I was home from school or my sister, we would watch the daytime TV and we never had cable. So we only had a couple of channels and a few options. And my two main shows for staying homesick were The Price is Right and a terrible soap opera called Passion or Passions or something. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that I always felt guilty watching because I was raised so religiously that even looking at someone on screen with like cleavage was like a sin. Get your boobs but out of here, lady. Get your I'm all hey, about go Christ. To, go confess to Jesus. Take if your boobs off. If there's not a crucifix between those boobs, I don't want to see it. <laughs> Bryce is right, though. Always felt wholesome enough that I never felt guilty about it. I did feel guilty about the watching TV when I wasn't supposed to, but worth it. And I would love to know... After all that, what was your staying home from school sick show? Uh, Yes. So I also watched a lot of game shows when I was homesick and I loved all of them. I still make jokes about those game shows, the really, really old ones, and nobody gets them. So uh, (laughs) Card Sharks, I watched $10,000 Pyramid. I would also watch uh, The Newlywed Game. I would watch Celebrity... What is the Celebrity one when they're on a boxes? Oh, I don't recall, but I know what you're talking okay, about. Okay, so that yeah. one. I remember watching uh, Family Feud, the old one, obviously, where he makes out with every contestant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and no one questioned it. Uh, America, <laughs> what was wrong with you? You're like, it's fine. <laughs> it's the 90s. Years. You're like, wait, this is still happening in the 90s? Jesus Christ. And then, well, they were like reruns from the 70s. So, Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, all of these were like reruns from the 70s. But then my favorite one, I think, was mm-hmm. Whammy, which you had a buzzer and you had to stop it on, uh, it's a little bit like Wheel of Fortune where you had to stop it on one of the placards that would give you a good thing. But there were also these things called whammies, and they were these little red monsters. And if you hit one of them, you would go bankrupt, and all of your prizes and cash would, like, be gone. So now, whenever I'm taking my blood sugar and I don't know if it's a high or a low, (laughs) I say to myself, like, no whammy, no whammy, stop. (laughs) And I do it to myself. And no one has any idea what I am talking about. Ever. Wow. And I will not stop. It's no, just you for shouldn't. Me. That's it's <laughs> hey, we all have our like I have this low blood pressure problem that I've had. I mean, it's not so bad anymore, but my entire family has it. And usually like when we stand up too fast, like there's a possibility of like fainting sort of a thing. And so it's been happening to me my whole life, and I have this weird ritual that I do where if I'm starting to black out, my brain is like, you have to say, oh, shit. 
every time. And it is like, it's like the only thing my brain is capable of doing at that point where it's like, you have to say, oh shit. And I think just like, if I don't, like what's going to happen if I don't? And I'm like, it's tradition. I say, oh shit. It is so stupid, but I completely understand. Oh my God. So yes, all of those old game shows were probably my favorites. Although I did watch GSN, which is the game show network. And Mm -hmm. so they had a lot of new iterations. So I did like Lingo and um, yeah, I guess I'm just a huge fan of game shows now that I'm (laughs) saying all of these. What I... I'm just now realizing this at the age of 27. Like, no one ever put this together for me. I love game shows. They're great. Uh, it's hilarious. They're very relaxing. Um, I don't really, I'm not very good at Wheel of Fortune, so I won't really mm, throw that one on. That's, much. I think, out of game shows, The Price is Right is my favorite. Mm-hmm. I love the contestants. They're yes, so the whole, crazy. It's so, like, and the, there's always one asshole who's like, one dollar, Bob. Like, I <laughs> yeah. love it. I when love it. And his tiny little microphone. God, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> and his huge teeth. It's like a noodle with a ping pong ball on the top. And it's like, who, what is, what are we doing Who is that here? for? Um, but I think aesthetically the wheel of fortune is so pleasing it's it so is. beautiful it and vanna in her gorgeous dress I all the vanna. time just walking with her beautiful long finger yeah. <laughs> that's not terrible i meant like elegant hands yeah yeah <laughs> she has like the grim reaper i've always said <laughs> her long fingers jesus christ <laughs> There's nothing I like better than skeletal fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I just love your long skeletal fingers. So should we move on to my question? Yes, okay. please. My question for you is, if you had to pick one or two Jeopardy topics where you think you could run the category, what do you think they would be? Well, you know one of them is going to be 30 Rock. <laughs> I knew it. God, 30 Rock quotes. Like, the, one of the only things I know well enough would be 30 Rock quotes. Uh, art history probably but i'd be like specifically jericho and only him <laughs> like yeah hey i'm gonna make it unfair um a niche artist who was obsessed with horses as uh, was i <laughs> this is our fantasy we can come up with anything as specific as we want and then also being an evangelical in the 90s mm. like like evangelical <laughs> 90s culture mm-hmm. yeah like i could i could sing what any would song do is the category name <laughs> Literally, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. I could start singing the songs with the hand motions and like love it. Oh uh, yeah, really get into it. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So that was three. Like art, his French art history things, French Revolution art history things, and Thirty Rock, and being a child of the '90s, growing up evangelical. Yes, and that makes. A lot I think of those sense. would be my powerhouse. Yeah. The, the big three. What would yours be? <laughs> yeah, the big the big three of my life. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Michael Schur comedies, which includes, like, The Office, mm-hmm. Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, mm-hmm. uh, The Good Place. Any of those, like, love it, all of it, super all in mm-hmm. for any of those. I also think it's really difficult because all of the literature ones that they always do are, like, you know, stuff about Hemingway. And I'm like, I don't care yeah, about that. He no. can go fuck himself. I'm choosing Hemingway can go fuck himself for 200 <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> 
Yeah, I just feel like a lot of the literature ones are always way over my head. And a lot of the art ones are Mm -hmm. too, but I would, I feel like I would have to throw in probably like modern painting, modern painters. Oh, sure. That probably makes sense. Mm -hmm. Not contemporary, specifically modern. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm being like perfectly honest, one of the categories would have to be like the girl who I don't know, but only through a friend who I've looked at her Instagram every day for three years. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I, I can't actually be honest about what these categories would be because they're too embarrassing. Like uh, the, the donut choices that are in the case at Safeway. Like, yeah. Um, I also think that like decipher your dog decipher what your dog wants from this noise like you know how they do the audio clues I yes could, i could run a category yes. that with my dog oh yeah right well i would like to rate this book uh as a 1000 in double jeopardy clue which has no reference point for real ratings but i would say somewhere around a three and a half out of a five scale okay great <laughs> i really enjoyed it it was a really fun read I probably won't think about this book that much after I'm done reading it, but it was still very fun. And next time that I watch Jeopardy, I will take the knowledge I have gained from this and think about how hard the people on Jeopardy worked to be on Jeopardy. (laughs) Oh, that is so true. So what I'm going to say is uh, three out of five of Alex Trebek's mustaches that he shaved off. Yes. (laughs) Because he shaved it off in the middle of like a tape day. So for some of the days of the taping that day, he had a mustache and then he went backstage and shaved it off, which I thought was hilarious. Like, good for you. It didn't tell anyone at Yeah, he just came back and he was like, it's gone. And I'm sure everyone like shit bricks (laughs) because men's facial hair is like the most, what? You did what with your face? Huh? And everyone like freaks out. Uh, (laughs) Security, get this man out of here. <laughs> Who is this invader to the Where's stage of Jeopardy? Alex. Yeah. I think that's really good. <laughs> I it wasn't um it wasn't like a stunning read to me in this like, oh my god, I'll think about it forever kind of way. It, mostly I think though, because I'm not like so invested in the world of Jeopardy. Because it was written well and there wasn't anything that stood out glaringly that I was like, oof. Could you yeah. workshop that a bit? <laughs> um, it, it was more just the, like, not the topic, not, like, yeah. sucking me in that much. But I did really like the way she, without being disrespectful or petty, kind of would throw in an aside of, like, can you believe these guys? Every so often, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciated that she, like, contextualized it from somebody who mm-hmm. isn't within this world. Because as we talked about, it's yeah, pretty specific. And it, it, yeah, I thought it was a really good handling of a topic that you could be very condescending totally. about if you were me writing the book, probably. <laughs> Someone, not me. <laughs> not me. I wouldn't ever. I know my limitations, okay? I have a pop culture pairing which goes along the lines of fascinating subcultures. And it is a documentary on Netflix called The Speed Cubers. And it is all about people who participate in Rubik's Cube competitions to see how fast they can solve Rubik's Cubes. And it's an adorable documentary. Most of the people who compete are teens or young adults. And Mm -hmm. it follows a couple of people specifically throughout the process. And it was just a really fun watch. So I would recommend that. Mm -hmm. 
that does feel like very in line with this kind of subject matter. I have two. The first one is mentioned in the book a lot, and it's one that many of us know well. And it's the SNL skits featuring Jeopardy episodes, or like they are parodies of Jeopardy. They're so funny. They've always been one of my favorite SNL bits. Turd Ferguson. And yeah, like the <laughs> the the running thing that like Sean Connery's always there and he always makes it like a dirty but like he makes it dirty by answering it wrong. It's so funny. It's hilarious. And the impressions are always so exceptional. I think there's one with where a guy impersonates Keanu Reeves, which as you know, know and love. Um and it's just so funny. But the other one that I wanted to give if anyone has wanted to like dive down into the nostalgia of old TV shows that made us feel safe and warm and didn't have to think, may I recommend Antiques Roadshow? Oh because it, this came back to me this week as I was like thinking about Jeopardy things. And I remember whenever I stayed with my grandmother and grandfather, but it was my grandma who was like really into it. That would that show would come on and she would like hustle out of the room to get this notebook out of her bag and she'd come back and she'd sit down and she would just take notes on these Amazing. antiques like the whole time because she was going to like find her shit and sell that for like a pretty penny. It was the Did best. Did she ever sell anything? I don't think so. Like she was very eccentric in these ways where she had lots of stuff but i don't know i mean some of it was worth she did have beautiful antiques but it wasn't like she ever yeah. went on the road show and hit it big where they're doing the like this <laughs> right. isn't this is from the roman empire <laughs> right. you know like, yeah. do you uh, oh really i dug it up in my backyard i would never know this is the oldest chair known to man <laughs> yeah, yeah literally this came from mesopotamia like jesus hilarious. use this footstool oh my like, god they're like wait this is Mary, the mother of gods, shawl. You've done it. <laughs> we could keep going for this joke forever. But she never had like that payday that she dreamed of, or like maybe she was dreaming of like the renown and the fame of being on Antiques Roadshow and that would also be having an item. Um, but she loved it. She would always like sit there and watch, just she would be riveted by it. Yeah. To use that word for the fourth time today. <laughs> so many times i love it <laughs> so i thought it, that's a good like it has the same nostalgia to me that jeopardy has yeah i can definitely say that i have not really watched antique roadshow that much uh i know that i've caught some of the like pawn stars shows and different oh, things like I that love those. obviously pawns it's like always on in a hotel room like, if you go into oh, yeah. a hotel room, it's, like, that or Mario Lopez. And those are your two options. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though they have cable, yes. those are your only two options. No, I'm obsessed with those, like, found a buried treasure <laughs> TV shows. Like, I can't help myself. Uh, yes. Maybe, maybe that's what oh, we should God. do with our lives. Which is probably why I like The Price is Right so much. Because it's like, what's behind this door? It's a million dollars! And you're like, what? I've oh, done it! Gosh. I wasn't expecting to find a oh, prize God. here on a game show. What? Yeah, there's always a, it's a yeah. brand new car! And everyone's like surprised. And it's like, there's a brand new car every time! But I'm still sitting at home like, wow. The, my favorite thing is when the audience like does cartwheels in the background. And they're just like, jump, they're like mosh pitting in the audience. And it's like, okay, Janice, maybe just take a breath. And on that <laughs> seriously. Note, <laughs> I guess we need to go uh, fall asleep to watching uh pawn stars so tune in again next time for more of our <laughs> <laughs>